Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning at Ivan Rest. This is the first time I've led worship here. Um, and I think I know why. Is um, You see, Pastor Tony and I were classmates at Calvin Seminary together. And um, Tony was very competitive. We used to play basketball against each other twice a week um, on, on Tuesday and Thursday mornings. And uh, we'd bring that competition into the classroom. But um, when it came time to graduate, I graduated one spot ahead of Tony in our class. Um, of a class of 42, I was 41st. <laughs> and so uh, Tony never really wanted to have me here and serve as a, as a guest preacher on a Sunday morning. But now that he's gone, I understand, which I'm sad to hear for you. I just learned that this morning. Uh, it is a delight to be here. So I have the, uh, the honor of serving as the Executive Director of Pastoral Services for Hope Network. Many people in this area recognize Hope Network because of our red buses that are all um, traveling around on our city streets. But we're certainly much more than a transportation company. Um, we have the the honor of serving people who face challenges on a daily basis, and we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so it's my privilege as the executive director to oversee a team of pastors located throughout the state that serves in um, adult foster care homes and group homes and clinics and crisis centers and um, hospitals uh, to serve people who have developmental or physical disabilities and challenges, those who have severe and persistent mental illness or those who have traumatic brain injuries. And um, on a daily basis, we have the privilege of serving um, nearly 20,000 people across the state of Michigan in 200 locations with the hope of Jesus Christ. I'm not here to talk about that work today. What I want to share with you uh, comes from God's word in Psalm chapter 3, Psalm 3. And uh, I invite you to open that if you have a Bible. I'm going to set the context, though, before we get into that psalm because it helps to understand the words, the impetus behind um, the words that are written here in Psalm 3. Nearly 4,000 years ago or more, there was a king who ruled in a mighty nation in the Middle East. And this king had many wives, as most kings did back in those days. And from those wives, he had many children. His oldest child, his oldest son that was born to him, was a son named Amnon. And with another wife, shortly after, he had a son who was named Absalom. And a few years after Absalom was born, Absalom's mother bore a sister who was given the name Tamar. So Amnon, Absalom, Tamar, and the rest of the king's children all lived together in the king's palace. But as they grew, Tamar was exceptional in her beauty, accentuated, of course, by her royal clothing and her brother, her oldest half-brother, Amnon, began to take a special kind of interest in her in a way that brothers should not. And he became so infatuated with her beauty 
and so filled with desire for her in a physical way that he became literally sick because he felt as though he must um, have her. So he devised a plan along with a friend to fake an illness and to lay in his palace bed one day and to specifically request that his sister Tamar would bake a loaf of bread for him and deliver it by her hand into his, uh, his uh, ailing body. Tamar did just that and Amnon forced himself upon her and violated her and defiled her and ruined the future of her life. Absalom, the brother of Tamar, heard of this and he took his sister in and kept her and protected her and began to seethe with fury about what his half-brother Amnon had done. And what made him even more upset was the fact that the king, his father, heard about this, knew about what had happened, and did nothing about it. He let the oldest child off the hook. So after some time, Absalom decided to take matters of justice into his own hands, and he devised a plot to kill his brother Amnon. So he went out into the fields and he was having a basically a sheep shearing party and he invited his brother Amnon out who he knew had a weakness for wine and so he brought him out to the party and as Amnon started drinking he gave the orders to have him killed and Amnon was executed by his half-brother's hands. Well, Absalom immediately flew uh, or flee from, from that spot and, and fleed to the country of his mother's father, his grandfather, for quite a long time because he was afraid what his father, the king, might actually do. A couple years passed and The king, though he was grieving for his oldest son, was also grieving the loss of his son Absalom, and so after some time ordered him to come back to the capital city. Absalom did return, but for another two years he was not permitted to see the king's face. He was in the city, but he was not allowed to see the king, to see his father. Now, Absalom, much like his sister, was exceptional in in his looks. Striking, handsome, muscular, without defect in any way, and he was charismatic. And while he was in the city but not allowed to see the king, his father, he started to build a little entourage of his own. He acquired a fancy chariot to ride around town. Imagine, you know, a a hot sports car today. That was Absalom riding around, and proceeding in front of him were 50 servants. And so, obviously, you would stop to watch and to see who this was coming. 
and his his charismatic personality, he also began to develop a little army of his own. Because in his mind, justice still needed to be done. He was furious that his father had never done a thing about what had happened to his sister Tamar. And so after he has acquired enough confidence and enough people, he goes to his father and he asks for permission to return to the country where he had fled, where he had fled, and where he would um, be able to uh, to honor a vow that he had made while he was there. And his father gave him permission to do that, but what he really did was just go a little ways outside of the city to gather up his army and to return into the city and to take the throne by force away from his father. His intent was not only to kill his half-brother, which he had accomplished, but was also to take and, if need be, to kill his father to take the throne. Well, the king hears about this plot before the army arrives in the city, and so he gathers what little uh, supporters, what little army he can, and he flees out the back door, essentially, of the palace and into the country. And he's on the run for days, for weeks, trying to flee to save his own life, having given up his throne, as it were, because he was being driven out by his son. Well, that king was King David. And when King David was in this far country on the run for his life, away hiding from his son Absalom, one evening as he was on, on, a, on this uh, escape journey, he sat down and he wrote a song as he was gifted to do, and that psalm was, or that song was Psalm 3. And these are the words that David composed while he was on the run from his son Absalom, having lost his throne, having lost his oldest child and the rightful heir to his throne, and another child who was trying to take it by force, and a daughter whose reputation, whose life had been defiled. How many are my foes, O Lord? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory upon me and you lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all of my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. And may your blessing be on your people. I think you can understand David's strong language against his enemies in this song. Even if one of those enemies was his son, strike them 
on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. We can understand the language that, that uh, he would use because nobody is going to want to give up their throne, to give up their power, their place and status in, in, uh, in this culture, but especially this way. And in David's case, as the chosen king of Israel, chosen by God and appointed by God to serve the people of God, you would think that not only would he have this kind of anger against his enemies, but that there, some of that anger might be turned toward God himself. It was God who appointed him to be this king. And if not anger, maybe some doubt, you know, the kinds of questions like, why have you allowed this to happen to me? Where are you when I need you? I mean, after all, isn't that one of the first instincts that we as people of faith have when things go against us? We turn our questions to God. We turn our doubts and our fears and maybe our angers and we point our questions and our, point our fingers at God and start to ask questions. When things go bad for us, when troubles mount, when anxiety raises and when we feel fear and all of these kinds of things, God just seems to be a natural target for our questions, for our anger, our frustration, and our doubts. But that's not the case for David in this psalm. Instead, he uses all kinds of grand language to describe his faith in God. You are a shield around me. You bestow glory upon me. You lift up my head. I will not fear the tens of thousands and deliverance and blessing and all these words that he uses to express his faith in God at the moment that he's running for his life from his son. I mean, somehow I think you would expect something different, something, something less from David. I mean, he was literally and figuratively in the desert on the run for his life, his throne being stolen by his son, and feeling like everybody has turned against him except for that small little cadre of people that went into the desert with him. And you would expect expressions of pain and uncertainty. Just as I imagine when we've had moments when it seems like everything is going against us, we have those moments of uncertainty and of fear. When there's those job uncertainties and what the future of the company holds or what, what your particular position within the company might hold. When there's the health struggles. When there's the news of a diagnosis or the ongoing chronic illness, things that just won't go away, when there's family issues between husband and wife, between parents and children, between siblings, when there's the loss, the sudden loss of a loved one. In these situations where it feels as though things are going against us, they challenge our faith. They, they feel like the enemies that are rising up against us. And what 
though, gave David such confidence in the midst of this, of this situation? What gave him such joy in such a difficult time? And what do you believe when you feel like you can't? Well, perhaps we can do what David did in Psalm 3. And that is to put, first of all, to put your pain into a God song. To put your pain into a God song. You know, if you read the Psalms, they are rich with the language of lament, with sorrow, with sadness. There's praise, to be sure. There's joy and exaltation in the Psalms. But there's also those expressions of lament in the most difficult times and the healthy expression of sorrow to God. In my last congregation that I served, we did a long series on lament and the beauty of lament because it is the proper biblical way for us to express our pain. And little did I know that in the midst of that, I would experience some of the most challenging personal experiences as well and had to model what lament would look like, what it would be, and to live that out. But it it gave me hope and strength in the midst of those times. Because, you know, for David and for us, pain does not need to define us. For David, it didn't define his relationship with God. What defined it was his position with God. You bestow glory on me and his confidence in what God would do, his relationship with God. And friends, we need to remember what our position is in those challenging times, like what 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We never lose that status. We never lose our position as children of God. Or what Romans chapter 8 verses 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. People facing challenges and facing fear have often resorted to song. But when God's people face these challenges, it's not like any old song. In the story of King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, there's a story of, of an army, the allied armies coming against him and his smaller army. And he ordered his people to, to fast, to pray, and, went, and then he assembled the troops. And before he did that and went into battle, he actually put the choir out in front of the army. And he did that to give them orders to sing because he knew that as they sang and lifted up their praises to God's holiness with confidence that the enemy would start to melt away. And I think that's still true today, that hymns and songs of praise work in our hearts and our spirits and our souls in a different way than anything else. If you're having any kind of spiritual conflict, the best defense is to sing And it's a way of resisting the power of the enemy who is trying to work against us. But the songs of praise will also be the best offense because the enemy will uh, hear these songs and will go hightailing away from the challenges. Amy Carmichael, who's a missionary in India, 
once wrote, I truly believe that Satan cannot endure the power of song and so slips out of the room when there is a hymn of praise. Praise or Prayer rises more easily, more spontaneously after one has let those wings, words, and music carry one out of oneself into that upper air. So put your pain into a God song and set it to a Genesis rhythm. Put your pain into a God song and set it to a Genesis rhythm. When you read the story of creation, the story of the creation account in Genesis carefully, you see that God designed creation, designed life with a rhythm to it. And David, I think, recognized this. And so right in the middle of his prayer, describing to the Lord how his life is out of rhythm, how his enemies are gathering around him, David invokes a new rhythm to get things back in order to calm all the the chaos going on around within him. And in so doing, he invokes a rhythm of a much grander scale, of a cosmic rhythm that has been going on since the the beginning of time. It's what the, the Jewish rabbis of old called the Genesis rhythm because it it sees how God created the world in the origins of creation itself and that he set a certain rhythm to all things. You take, for example, the, the Sabbath. Long before religious types came along and made it a, a list of things that we can do and cannot do on the Sabbath, the intention of God to create the Sabbath, to give us the Sabbath, was to get us back into a rhythm, a rhythm of rest and a rhythm of work throughout the week. Because knowing how we were created, that we are not like a high-powered engine that can run on, um, you know, 6,000 RPMs all week long, that we needed the rhythm of rest in our lives. Nobody was meant to work seven days, to go nonstop. And part of the Genesis rhythm recognizes that there is also a redemptive value, not just in the Sabbath, but in each new day. That each day is a recreation of God's providential care, of God providing a new beginning and new opportunities to live in his gracious care. You hear that in the words of Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 that say, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed For his compassions never fail. They are new. Every morning, great is your faithfulness. And it's the old rhythm, the cosmic rhythm, that David found in his new rhythm. And it sounded like this. I lie down in sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I lie down and sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. And it was those words in the midst of his anxiety, in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his chaos that gave him peace. But it also tied him back to the very way that God has shown from the beginning of time that each day is a recreation of his providential care and an opportunity to live in his gracious um, well-being. So I want to invite you to say those words with me. Feel that rhythm, and we'll just repeat these 
over and over again. And in a moment, I want to read a portion of the creation story. And I want to just encourage you to just keep going. If you'll say this with me, I lie down and sleep, I wake again, the Lord sustains me. Go ahead and join me. I lie down and sleep, I wake again, the Lord sustains me. I lie down and sleep, I wake again, the Lord sustains me. I lie down and sleep, I wake again, the Lord sustains me. And there was evening, keep saying it, and I lie down and sleep, I wake again, the Lord sustains me. Keep going. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. I lie down and sleep, I wake again, the Lord sustains me. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. You see how that works? You see how that Genesis rhythm, the recreation on any day was God's uh, providential care. And with these words, I think David was getting himself back into that rhythm of saying, I lie down and sleep, I wake again, the Lord sustains me. Because tomorrow, despite all the troubles I'm facing today, tomorrow's a new day of God's providential care, of a chance to live in God's grace. So what do you do when those piles are troubling up, when your life seems out of rhythm, and maybe it's even affecting your ability to sleep, as stress will do to most of us? When you've been diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, I lie down and sleep, I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. When you face job uncertainties, I lie down and sleep, I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. When you're having trouble in a relationship, I lie down and sleep, I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. So friends, you put your pain into a God song. You speak to God in prayer. You sing praises, uh, songs of praise to God, and you set it to a Genesis rhythm, but then with a distinctive gospel chorus. Put your pain into a God song set to a Genesis rhythm with a distinctive gospel chorus. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it means that Jesus Christ is the same in his love, in his compassion, in his sustaining grace throughout all of our days. That it's not just simply a rhythm, but it's a rhythm set to the distinctive gospel chorus of Jesus Christ who has paid for all of the agony and the sin and the misery of this world with his blood so that we can believe in his sustaining grace. I think we carry a lot of unnecessary burdens and a lot of needless, uh, a lot of unnecessary burdens about the past and a lot of needless worry about the future, ignoring the redemptive value of a new day and the Lord's ability to sustain us there. As David expressed in Psalm 3, rest is more about the presence of security than it is about the absence of activity or the absence of anxiety or the absence of fear. It is more about the presence of security than the absence of any of these things. If you have a restless spirit, 
if you have anxieties, if you have fear, if you have doubts, if you have the feeling that there's enemies around you, remember to put your pain into a God song. Set it to a Genesis rhythm. I lie down and sleep. I wake again. The Lord sustains me with a gospel chorus, distinctive gospel chorus, fully confident in what God is recreating for the light of a new day by his grace. The song that we're going to sing in just a moment is one of my personal favorites as much because of the number of times that I've sang it, but also because of the story behind it. Perhaps you know the story, but allow me to just set the context for this well-known hymn again. It was about 150 years ago, and Horatio Spafford, who was a well-known lawyer and businessman in Chicago, where he lived with his wife, Anna, and their five children. He had invested heavily in real estate in those days and uh, was especially along the shores of Lake Michigan and near the downtown part of Chicago. But he was also a prosperous man and a devout Christian. However, in 1870, a series of events occurred in his life that would challenge his faith. That year, Horatio and Anna's only son died of scarlet fever at the tender age of, of four. And a year later, while the Spaffords were still grieving the loss of their son, the great Chicago fire broke out and destroyed nearly every one of his properties, of his, all of his investments. His entire life savings had been burned up. And aware of the toll that these disasters were having on his family, he, he decided to take his wife and his four daughters on an extended vacation to England that summer and to also uh, accompany the famous evangelist D.L. Moody on his next crusade. However, just before he, they were scheduled to leave as a family, uh, some last-minute business developments came along for him, and so he didn't want to ruin the family vacation, so he urged his wife and his four daughters to go on ahead of him, and he would catch up on another uh, ship in within a week or so. And so he remained in Chicago, and his wife and daughters boarded the French cruise ship, the Vielle du Bois. But several days later, Hiroshio was given horrible news. The ship that his family was on had been struck in the Atlantic Ocean by another ship on its way from England to America. And the Vielle du Bois sank in only 12 minutes, resulting in 226 passengers dying. It was the worst nautical disaster uh, prior to the sinking of the Titanic. And the next day, he received a telegraph from his wife, who had been rescued in the disaster somehow. And the telegraph said, these six words, survived alone, what should I do? So the Spafford's four daughters were among those who had perished at sea. And after hearing the horrible news, Horatio Spafford boarded the next ship out of New York to join his grieving wife, whose five children were now all dead. And during the trip, the captain called Horatio to the bridge to tell him they were now passing the very place where the Vielle du Bois had sank. 
And it was there while staring into the watery grave of his beloved daughters that Horatio Spafford wrote the words of the great Christian hymn, It is well with my soul, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And you can almost hear the words of Psalm 3, verse 5, echoing through this. I lie down and sleep, I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. Friends, let's pray. God, in your sustaining grace and in your sustaining peace, we thank you for this new day. For some of us, yesterday may have been a wonderful day, and for some it may have been a discouraging day. Tomorrow might be the same. But we know, Lord, that in each and every day is a unit in itself in which you extend your grace, your faithfulness. And at the end of a day, we can lie down and sleep and wake again, knowing that you will sustain us. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us peace in our souls when those enemies are surrounding us, that we might rest in the security of your presence and not in the absence of anxiety or fear or doubt, but knowing that you are a God who, despite what life brings us, we can say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen.